The preaching of God's Word then is found in Exodus 33 and verse 19. Exodus 33 and verse 19. It's our hope to begin something of a series, not on this passage, but what it's speaking of in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 8. And yet, in order to understand those verses, we need to understand this and the surroundings. So we give our attention now to Exodus 33 and verse 19. God is here before us. And we read, And He said, I will make all My goodness pass before thee, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In times of distress, it is of course common and expected that the children of God would look to God for comfort. And what a blessing it is as well that the Scriptures record in our own experience and His mercy confirms that God is one who is pleased to provide comfort to His children. In the passage before us, we have such a record You'll notice just looking back that Moses is quite dismayed. So he has been appointed of the Lord to um, lead God's people, and he's already encountered several uh, difficulties and trials. And now it seems that which overwhelms him the most is that while he was away enjoying the revelation of God and His holy law and receiving that which he was coming to make known unto God's people, Unbeknownst to him in that time, God's very people, whom Moses loved and cared for, had given themselves to false worship and all manner of iniquity. And so Moses is cast down. And we saw that where we picked up the reading earlier, when Moses in verse 12 said, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people. Thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me, yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. Moses is quite distressed. And yet notice the passage is the Lord's response to Moses' need. Certainly a response to Moses' request as he appeals to God to draw near and condescend and comfort and guide and uphold and direct. But it's the Lord's gracious care of him, providing comfort. And notice, in looking at the passage, you can see a few things. In the text itself, there's that record of God's gracious response when he says, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. And it's not just a testimony of what he is going to do, but it's a testimony of his willingness to do it. And you'll see the importance of this when at the end of that verse, he indicates his absolute and utter sovereignty. He's under no compulsion. He's under no restraint or constraint of outside of himself that's saying you have to do this in order to be generous and kind and so on, because he says, notice, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom, on whom I will show mercy. And so it's a tremendous testimony of his kindness to Moses that he is willing to meet Moses and show him this gracious provision 
of himself. Notice the request recorded in verse 12, and then you'll see how the Lord responds in verse 17, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken for, see this, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. So the text is holding before us the record of God's gracious reply to Moses. But notice as well in the text, there's the record of the content of this reply. So he says, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and so on. Now this is important in context because Moses has asked for this very thing, show me Make known to me your name. Now this may strike us as a bit strange at first, but the idea of name is far more than a few syllables. What Moses is crying out for is to know God. Lord, I want to know you. I want to know you as one knows one by name. The intimacy of that, our culture has gone to an extreme of informality so that even children now call adults by first names. But in some places of society, there's still some due propriety in referring to others with titles, Mr. and Mrs. and other such things. And that's not because it's unduly formal. It's because there's reverence and respect to those who are above us. Now, our culture has obliterated that. And all sorts of things have been pushed out of whack. But you'll notice what Moses is getting at is, I don't just want to know your title. I don't just want to know that you are, as it were, God of heaven and earth. I want to know you. I want to be known by you. Say you know me, and yet here I am struggling and in difficulty, and I'm finding all of these trials around me. You'll see the text that we'll be considering the weeks to come. The answer to this, or the display of it in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 8, when it is that the Lord descends, and notice verse 5, he proclaimed the name of the Lord. And he doesn't just say, here's my name, but he says, as he proclaimed, the Lord, that is Jehovah, Jehovah God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness, and so on. God is opening to Moses the clear manifestation, the revelation of himself. But you'll see something in the text as well that Moses has said, show me thy glory. But God is actually declining to do so. He says to him in a couple of different ways, notice in verse 20, he says, thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. In some sense, the Lord is saying to Moses, you don't understand what you're asking If you were to see all that I am, you would be consumed as in a moment. You get whispers of this in the Scriptures. We don't mean to be trite with it, but you see it when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and he gets a glimpse of His majesty. And here the prophet is then consumed with the sense of his great wickedness and depravity. And even that was not a full sight of the glory of God. Because had it been, Isaiah would not have been able to lament his sin but rather would have been consumed in that moment. But what the Lord does is He condescends, and instead of doing that which would actually harm Moses, He does that which comforts and helps by 
directing Moses to his grace and mercy. So Moses stood in need of help, and we see God providing him the help needed. What is it? It's fundamentally a revelation of himself. Isn't that insightful for us for a moment? That when it is that we're in distresses, and we think, I need this, I need that, would you tell me the plan, would you make me know this, and all these things, that God sees the fundamental need is a clear remembrance of who He is. And so here's Moses at his wit's end. He's already abased himself multiple times, recorded in Exodus, on account of the transgressions of his people, the judgments that would break out. Moses is on his face again and again. He bears the insults of this wayward people. He bears the insults of the stiff-necked people. And yet he continues to seek their good. And finally, at the moment where personally Moses is knowing nothing but this intimate fellowship and disclosure of God on the top of Mount Sinai, He comes doubtlessly expecting and longing for the advance of His people and He's met with the scene of revelry, of licentiousness and wickedness and judgment breaks out upon the people of God and that causes Moses now to be in these desperate straits. What the text reminds us, shows us, is that the Lord graciously provides His burdened and cast down people the revelation of Himself and His grace in order to comfort them. So we wish to look at a couple things as we consider this truth that God reveals Himself and His grace to His people to comfort them by firstly considering general revelation. And considering that general revelation is insufficient to comfort God's people. And secondly, looking at special revelation is that alone which can comfort. Now, why do we start here? We start here because a few things. The text, of course, doesn't mention anything about general revelation. It's emphasizing the special revelation of God, but it's helpful for us to see just how that is then a great means of comfort. And then it will also help us to understand the text we'll spend more time with in future weeks when the Lord is proclaiming the manifestation of His grace and mercy and long-suffering, things which only are known by the special revelation of His Word. So firstly then, general revelation is in itself insufficient. So what is general revelation? Well, Scriptures uh, acknowledge that God truly reveals Himself by and in nature. So nature is a broad term. When we hear the term nature in our culture, we simply think of forests and rivers and mountains. And that's truly something of nature. The sun, the stars, the moon, these things are there. But nature is also human nature, conscience and moral consciousness. And we don't need to spend much time on this because this is, in some sense, background to the main idea. But notice, for instance, in Psalm 19, that there is a clear testimony of the clear revelation unto all men by nature. And so you have it in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. David records, "...the heavens declare the glory of God." And the firmament showeth His handiwork day unto day uttereth speech, 
And night unto night showeth knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, and so on. Notice just looking at those few verses, that there is a true revelation of God by creation. And so the Son is testifying to the world some portion of His wisdom and power. And since the Son is universally seen, David indicates that there's no place where this revelation does not reach. So this reaches the pagans of yesteryear in the midst of Egypt and Europe and Africa and Asia and so on. All of these places uh, had the witness of creation bearing light saying there is a God who is glorious and powerful and wise and worthy of worship. Notice, of course, that Paul himself takes up this same theme in the opening of his epistle to the Romans. Romans in chapter 1 when he is quite clear in the same point, though less poetic in this moment, Romans chapter 1 and at verse 19, he says, "...that which may be known of God is manifest..." The word manifest means clear. "...is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from or by the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood..." by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Do you see that? So the whole world has the clear, undeniable witness that God is, that God is eternal, that God is powerful, and that all men everywhere owe Him utter and complete obedience. There's much more to be said about this and perhaps on other occasions we'll spend more time, but simply note that men everywhere, as Paul goes on to say, are without excuse. There's no excuse that any man has for not worshiping and glorifying the one true God of heaven and earth. Notice further this revelation of himself by nature. Again, is not just through the created things outside of us, but it's through that reality within us. So in this same epistle, Romans chapter 2, notice at verse 14, Paul, this is important because Paul's writing as a Jew to whom were entrusted the oracles of the living God. And then he says, but look at the Gentiles, the nations, who do not have the law, the revelation of Scripture. And yet, by nature, they do the things contained in the law. These having not the law, the Scriptures of Revelation, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness in their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. By no means, as the whole of this epistle shows, is Paul saying that they are able to keep their conscience's testimony, but it is saying that every man everywhere has a conscience which is reminding them that there is right and there is wrong. People say, well, then what about the atheists? The Scriptures have answered that so simply and so fully. It's the fool 
that hath said in his heart, there's no God. It's not the wise man, whatever his credentials. It's not the intellectual man, however many degrees he has. It is the fool that says there's no God. Why? Because they're denying the overpowering light and witness, both from outside of them and within them, that there is a God supreme to whom they owe all obedience. And yet, though it's true that God truly reveals Himself by nature, the revelation of Himself by nature is unable to comfort and unable to comfort in the most important of things, namely salvation. Why? Because the revelation of God in creation and in conscience tells us that there is a mighty, powerful, wise, and worthy God that we owe allegiance to Him, but it leaves us without any mention of the way of deliverance for the fact that we've sinned. So our consciences accuse us before you were converted, even if never in the church. Your conscience would work and say, what I'm doing is wrong. You didn't really need someone to teach you that lying was wrong. Now, you could harden your heart, and many of us did, and so on, and it dulls the conscience, and it calluses the conscience in a sense, and yet the conscience is witnessing to us, I've done wrong. And likewise, though not in perfection, there would be a sense of encouragement when we did what was, in one degree or another, right. And so if our friends were cheating on a test and we abstained, even though not a Christian, there was a sense of confirming within us, that was right what I did in abstaining from that. And so our conscience functions that way. But neither our conscience nor the stars, the sun, the moon, the grass, the animals, whatever else in creation, none of it can tell us, here's the remedy for your sins. And so this is why we can look, for instance, at men of previous generations and even in our own generation who are diligent students of the things of the world, diligent students of their own souls. You can think of people in the past like Plato and Aristotle. They had massive problems, of course, and yet you look at them and you are astounded at the clarity that they had in some ways about human nature and the ways of the world and other such things, it's overwhelming in many ways how clear they were on some points, and yet that without any scriptural testimony. They simply observed, they paid attention, and they looked and learned in those things. But what you will find in no book written by such men is the clear and true remedy for sin. They can point out many things that obviously can't be, but they could never settle and state authoritatively what the way of peace with God was. Why? Because they were perhaps great and excellent, but only students of the revelation of God by nature. That's enough to sober us. That's enough to make us cut off some Outwardly scandalous behaviors, it's enough for us to say, well, that's wrong, this is right in many general ways and even specific ways, but it's insufficient to tell us the way of salvation. Notice in one way that Paul confirms this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and you'll see Paul is, of course, extolling the preaching of Christ, the preaching of the gospel, this mystery that was hidden 
as it were, now made known. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1, notice as he says, Brethren, when I came to you, I came not in, with excellency of speech or of wisdom declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Verse 4, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now certainly there's something here that is being um, mentioned about the, the, the vain use of rhetoric, but you'll see in context, he speaks as well, not just of the vain use of rhetoric, but also of the substance of what he's preaching. Notice, for instance, in verse 7, or verse 6, he says, We speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And so on. What's the point? Paul is indicating the substance the message and the manner of my preaching is all governed and guided by this truth. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And the best of men with the best of resources and the best of means could never find out that it is by Christ crucified that sinners are saved. Brethren, this should give us pause for one moment to say, we could be the best of philosophers and the best of men and women taught by you know, diligent study of others who have gone before us and human nature and society and so on. And we could be beacons of guidance for moral things. You have different people today that are doing this kind of thing and they're challenging immorality. And yet they're doing so really simply by observing the nature of things. It's not because they are Christians. It's not because they look at the, the Scriptures and say, well, this is the way. And it's, you'll notice it because they're never pointing you to Christ. They're simply saying, look at this absolute groundless wickedness of our age and how it breaks the family, how it destroys the fabric of society, how it unlooses all sorts of moral evils. And so all of the you know, transgenderism that's going on raises up witnesses, understand this, from godless people saying, this is wrong. And they're saying it because it's first glance obvious. It doesn't require Scripture to get that right. It simply requires a mind that observes the nature of things and says, that is abhorrent. That is wicked. That's why when Paul addresses, the Scriptures in general address homosexuality, think of the language, unnatural lusts. It's contrary to nature. It doesn't require the Bible to make us see that those things are abhorrent and repulsive, not in some dirty feeling style, as it were, that makes us say, you know, that's uh, uh, simply naughty in some sense, but because it is violating the way that things are to work, both in the physiology of it all, but also in the relationships between people and the good of families and home and society and so on. And so it shouldn't strike us as amazing when godless people with foul mouths and so on stand up and say enough's enough. 
This is ruining children. This is why you have people that work in the abortion mills and they come out and they say, this is wrong. Now they still may be for many other things that are absolutely wrong elsewhere. But they've seen enough without any special revelation of God. And they say, how is it possible that we can be such a mindless people and permit this? And so you can understand there's great benefit in the revelation of God by nature. And there's great help even to society in many ways by that. But here's the thing. None of it tells us of Christ. None of it corrects ultimately the fundamental need. And thus none of it can actually comfort our souls with the greatest needs that we require. And this, of course, notice God doesn't say to Moses, well, Moses, look around and be comforted. Now, there are times where he says, look at the stars, but notice what he says, who made this? Your God. He doesn't just say God made it, but your God made it. I'm the God who has covenanted with you. There's grace that has made all these things. So you can see how they come together. But the only comfort for us is by that special additional revelation of God Himself regarding Himself. And so notice then secondly, the special revelation of God is the only thing which may comfort us both as to assurance and even to the peace of conscience which sinful souls desperately need. Notice what are those means of special revelation. So God, of course, has revealed Himself through creation and conscience, to simplify it, nature, general revelation, tells us about God and His being, His eternity, His power, and so on. What's special revelation? Special revelation is a term that tells us of that particular way that God reveals Himself and the particular message which God reveals by that way. So in special revelation, you have not, God doesn't leave us to our observation to deduce and so on from our observations. He comes and He tells us explicitly, here are the truths for you to consider. So He's not leaving us to our own imagination. And see, this is why there's so much problem in the world that's left to general revelation. We're left as sinful people now to our own understanding and deduction and so on. Remember that our minds have been influenced and infiltrated by sin. So theologians speak of the noetic effects of sin. That sin isn't just something that sort of turns our desires around, but it actually turns our way of thinking rightly around. And so this is you know, fundamental stuff. But here, what God does with His Word is He puts it in clear testimony, in words and so forth, to reveal plainly what His will is. Now, as God reveals Himself more plainly, this also confirms things that are found in general revelation. So He tells us He's the Maker of heaven and earth. He tells us He's eternal. He tells us He's powerful. He tells us He's the only God. All of that is something that's made known by nature itself. But he's doing it more precisely. It's, it's clearer. But more to the point of our text, special revelation tells us and reveals to us himself as gracious 
and merciful and saving. So notice the text just to see it again that he says, I will make all my goodness pass before thee and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. I will let you know who I am. Moses perhaps could have paused and said, wait a second, I already know who you are by looking at creation and so on. But obviously, God's saying, I'm going to tell you something more intimate. I'm going to tell you something about me that the rest of the world doesn't know. And the rest of the world can't understand. Because it's not known by creation. It's not known by conscience. Now, it doesn't contradict creation or conscience, but it reveals something that neither creation nor conscience can make known to us. It reveals God as gracious. Notice again the link between verse 19 and the next chapter, verse 6, when it is that He passed by before Him and proclaimed. So what was God going to proclaim? The name of the Lord before thee. And now it is, in verse 6 of chapter 34, the Lord passed by before Him and proclaimed. And He doesn't just say, My name is Jehovah. That's not it. He says, The Lord, that is Jehovah, Jehovah God, Jehovah Elohim, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation." Say, wait a second, you know, special revelation telling us about grace, and here it is telling us about judgment. Well, remember, special revelation confirms and clarifies judgment. But here it's opening to our understanding. God is proclaiming of Himself, Himself to us. So He is the subject proclaiming, but He's also the object being proclaimed. So here's the Lord proclaiming Himself to His people. And what is it that this special revelation reveals? It reveals what God is as gracious. Now, we can step back. We hear the rain falling, which comes as a mercy to the world right now. So we've been lacking rain. And we can step back and say, well, wait a second. God's goodness is shown in creation. And we say, absolutely. His goodness is shown through His common mercies to others. And so it's right. He sends rain uh, to the fields. He gives wine, which makes glad the heart. Oil, which makes the face to shine. All of these things are good. But none of those tell us that this God is willing to forgive our sins. At most, creation tells us and providence tells us, apart from that special providence of the way of redemption, tells us that this God is both holy and generally providing to even a wayward people. But nothing in creation tells us that this God is willing to forgive sin and how it is He does so. That's only known by the revelation of Himself in Scripture. Notice how simply this is put by Paul when he says in 2 Timothy in chapter 3, of course, you'll remember that he's about to exhort Paul or Timothy unto the preaching of His Word. Why in the world does He need to do so? Why is it that Paul would say to Timothy, whatever else you do, 
in good seasons and bad seasons, when they want to hear you, when they don't want to hear you, the one thing that you must not let go of is the preaching of His Word. Well, first off, what is His Word? Notice in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, Paul says that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, those sacred writings. But notice how, what he says of those Scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So the Scriptures are that given means by which God makes us wise to salvation. It's that means, and only that means, that makes us know the way of deliverance for our sins by a Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he goes on to Uh, give different characteristics and perfections of the Scripture in verse 16 and 17. But notice then in verse 4 or chapter 4, verse 1, he now charges Timothy before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom? Preach the word. Why not be philosophical? Why not just be students of creation and so on? Because he's already said so. Because the Word alone tells us the remedy, the divine remedy to man's greatest problem. The Scriptures alone tell us the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews as well, chapter 1, will emphasize this point in chapter 1, verse 1. God who at sundry or various times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. Now notice, in in these three verses, there are various ways noted that God makes known or made known His special revelation. Sundry times, different times, diverse manners, different ways. He spoke by prophets. Of course, he spoke directly as well. But here, Hebrews is telling us, in this day, he's spoken by his son. And this son who did what? Who purged our sins. And so, as we sort of come back to the main thing here, now consider what Moses is receiving from the Lord. He's receiving the special revelation of a God who is gracious and merciful and forgives sins. Why is that needed? It's needed because, as Moses has indicated several times, as God Himself has indicated, the people whom Moses is serving is a sinful people. And Moses is in this moment of crisis saying, there seems to be no hope. I don't understand how we're going to get from here to the promised land because the people whom I'm serving are so riddled with iniquity and you are a holy God and I'm a man who is impure and all of these different things. What hope is there? I need to know you. And God says, I'll let you know this of me. This is your hope. This is your comfort. Personally and you know, officially as well as for the whole people corporately. I am a gracious God who forgives sin. I am a merciful God who is generous and long-suffering. 
I am a God who is abundant in goodness and truth. I am gracious. You need to know that. Brethren, is this not obvious as to how much need we have for this simple revelation? Because we're right to acknowledge, as God Himself, even in the revelation in Exodus 34 indicates, we're right to acknowledge that God is holy and just and righteous, that He'll by no means clear the guilty, those who in their presumption just keep on going on and do not consider the way of redemption by grace through Him. We need to know those things about God. But if that's all we know about God, and we become acquainted with our sins and the sins of others and the sins of the church, it's easy for us, indeed, it is necessarily so that we will be led to become tremendously cast down. Because the more we become convinced of the clarity of God's holiness, and the more we become convinced of the sins committed by others and ourselves, the more we become convinced that there's no hope. But here God steps in, as it were, and He says, let me tell you something about me that you need to know. I am gracious. I am merciful. I am long-suffering. And I forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. Brethren, as we think on this truth, it's Scripture alone now, as Hebrews tells us, you know, in previous times, God, through different ways, did reveal Himself to His people, but now has spoken to us by His Son, and since then has closed the other special ways in giving us His Word alone. Think for a moment what a consolation it is that you have even a copy of the Bible. You may not be of the mental fortitude and aptitude of those great minds of you know, previous years or even in our years. But if you have the Bible, you have the self-disclosure, the proclamation of God of Himself, not only confirming those things we can know by nature and clarifying them, but conveying to us what cannot be known by nature. The thing which is most needed to be known by man. That there is forgiveness. That there is hope in the Lord who is gracious. And obviously, God doesn't go and fully tell Moses everything at this moment, but He gives him enough to realize that there's hope in this God who is gracious. So brethren, here is something for you who faces trial and difficulty. It's to remember that God proclaims Himself truly as the God who is gracious and merciful. The Word of God, if we just consider in the basic meaning of it, is God's testimony to us regarding Himself and His will. Yes, it brings to us, even in context, the holy law of God. And yes, it tells us of our sins, which is quite apparent. And we actually are grateful for that because it doesn't allow us to shirk and to move around and to jostle ourselves away from what's easily to shake off if it's not written down. The Word of God comes with such force that we're left to say, it's true, God's holy, and I've sinned. But if that's all that the Word of God was, we would be in a position of great difficulty and despair. But God has been pleased to tell us 
of His grace and mercy. And this is something that He hasn't given to everyone. He's charged the church to go and preach throughout the whole world the things of Christ and His commanded will and so on. But that has not gone to everyone. But it has come to you. So let me ask you this for a moment. Are you any different and any better than those to whom it hasn't come? Are you living not only with clearer understanding of God's precise and holy will, but are you living with the peace and the joy and the gladness of knowing God as your God? A God who is gracious and merciful and who forgives sins. Now before we say something like, well yeah, because I know God is gracious. The question is not what you know. Because as we'll see, God makes Himself known by His Word. He tells us of His grace, but He also tells us that He will, in fact, punish those who continue in their sin. So it's not a question of, do I have the Word of God and understand it? It's a question of, do I have this proclamation of God regarding Himself, regarding His grace, and I've embraced it, and I've trusted it? And you can see a little whisper of it as we'll get to in Exodus 34, verse 9, when now Moses is, as it were, encouraged, Lord, let my Lord, I pray Thee, go among us. See how he's whispering an encouragement. Here I was cast down, but now having gained a little sight of Your grace, I'm encouraged to ask, go with us. And notice, and now he can say, pardon our iniquity and our sin. And take us for thine inheritance. He has a ground for his hope. And he has a reason for expectation. Because God is not just holy and powerful, but God is gracious and merciful and forgives sins. You see, what happens is, this causes Moses to fall on his face. It's a false mark of joy that gets people up hooting and holler and waving their hands and all these kinds of things. When there is the intimate knowledge of God, a holy God, a gracious God, who makes known Himself as willing to forgive sins, the soul that sees that is brought to humble Himself because He's unworthy of this. It's striking, isn't it? Moses emphas- or God emphasizes this. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And Moses is there thinking, both I and my people are unworthy. But praise God. And someone says, well, this is because it's the Old Covenant. Moses humbles himself. You know, in the New Covenant, we should be possessed with nothing but smiles. There should be smiles and gladness and joy. But it's striking, isn't it? In heaven, the grand manifestation of God's holiness and grace Beyond compare, you find the worshipers on their face, delighting themselves and worshiping the holy God who is gracious. doesn't mean that they're weeping and crying in heaven, but here's the evidence. They are humbled in their worship of this One who is far transcendent of them and yet who has come near to them. You hear this in the world even. Someone gets an award, they're generally a humble person, and they they say something like, 
you know, I don't deserve this award, right? Now that can be mimicked and that can be faked, but then there is the reality of it as well. Someone gets it and they say, you know, this belongs to other people who helped me. This belongs to my mom and dad who sacrificed for me. This help belongs to my teachers who invested in me. This belongs to so-and-so. And some will, of course, say this is God's mercy to me. And there's giving glory and praise to Him knowing that they themselves are unworthy. This reproves, of course, those who refuse to search the Scriptures regarding the way of salvation. And so they take the Bible and they effectively rip out the message of God's grace. Apart from it gives them a little encouragement, it whispers something in their ear, and then they leap upon all of the duties and say, here's how I'm going to get right with God. I'm going to be encouraged to know that in some sense God's gracious and merciful, and I'm going to work it out through all of my efforts. And God says, you don't know my name then. You don't know me. You don't understand who I am. I don't accept you because you've done this, that, and the other thing. Your works are as filthy rags in my sight. They are unclean. If you know me, you know that the only way of being at peace with me is because I'm gracious and I pardon sin and I've sent my Son, Jesus Christ, to make atonement for sins. It's an outright reproof. If ever we should lean upon our works as meritorious in God's sight, as earning favor with God, as climbing the different rungs of the ladder and getting into heaven by our own obedience, when God says, you don't understand. I don't say the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious and simply uh, uh, paying out what you earn. He says, no, I forgive iniquity, transgression and sin. I'm a gracious God who forgives. Well, brethren, as we close, it may be that one would be here as convicted because they're in their sin. And here is your great privilege God has not left you to the light of nature which would only condemn you. However much progress and however many attainments you would make, He's given to you instead the light of Scripture. And understand this. Understand this well. There are millions in history who have been born and lived and died with conviction and outward reformation and all of these different sacrificial duties without so much as a syllable from the Holy Scriptures telling them about Christ. And they are in hell right now. But to you, the Word of God has come where God has said, I am a gracious God who forgives sin. And the Scriptures open to us how He does that through Christ alone. How will you go on and stand before God on that day if you do not flee to Christ alone? This is why Christ says, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, woe unto thee, Chorazin. If the works done in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they had repented long ago. This message of Christ to the world and the message of Christ has come to you. Be sure, if you repent not, if you trust not in Christ, 
this will more than double and multiply your agony in the place of damnation. But here's the good news. God has made known Himself to you and with goodwill would say, as Christ does, come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden. Well, brethren, to those of you who are believing, as Moses, the meekest of men, so likewise you will have seasons of discouragement when you search out your own sins or you see the sins of others or you see the providences of difficulty and obstacles mounting up. You say, what hope is there? Here's the hope. God, whom you know by name, is gracious, merciful, and forgiving. When we look at our world today and we see all of the mess that's in it, it's easy to lose hope if we blot out the self-revelation of God who is gracious. Here's our hope. It's not in ourselves. It's not in the world. It's not even in the church. It's in our God who is gracious and merciful. That should stir us up to pray. That's what happened to Moses. He's stirred up to pray now. Lord, this is a stiff-necked people. Pardon it. Should we not say that? Lord, look at the stiff-necked people. Pardon them. Look at the wickedness. Pardon it. Be gracious and advance your church. Take us from the wilderness into the land of promise. You've promised advance. You bring it through because not only are you faithful and true, but you're gracious. That's our hope. That's our comfort. The God that is our God is gracious. If that's the case, let us be sure to take our discouragements to Him, to cast our cares upon us for He cares for us, and to look to Him through that appointed Mediator, Jesus Christ, which is made known to us in the Scriptures for our peace, for our gladness, for our joy and support, and for our comfort now and forever. Would you stand with me for prayer?